So please turn with me to your, in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 18. Revelation chapter 18. We'll be looking at this, this entire chapter. It, it is a lengthier chapter, um, but much of it is given in a poetic format, so it, it certainly looks longer than it actually is by word count. Um, this does reflect, for the most part, a lament, just like we looked at in Ezekiel uh, chapter 30, the lament for Egypt, which followed as well the pattern of the lament for Tyre. About Babylon, we looked at last week this idea of Babylon and the beast representing the assault of Satan upon the church. And that assault comes through both the seduction of our lustful desires, as well as the indulgence of our misplaced fears. And so those threats are not finally removed until they are destroyed by Christ at His second coming. What Babylon represents remains among us, to one degree or another, um, all the way till the end. And so that can really only be a vantage point that a believer has from heaven. It's a perspective that must be revealed to us. And that's what the scripture does. The believer is filled with hope, recognizing that the, the proper view of judgment is to be taken from that eternal perspective, seeing the end result. Um, another way to view judgment is through the lens of the unbeliever, and those who will fall under that judgment. Their lamentation here is filled with shock and regret. They weep and they mourn for what they have lost. And so rather than being filled with hope, the unbeliever is filled with angst for the future. And this chapter includes both of those perspectives for us. There's, those are the only two options. You either view it from the believer's standpoint, which is given to us in God's Word, in his revelation of, of a heavenly perspective, an eternal perspective to the reality of God's judgment, or you have the option of seeing it from the perspective of an unbeliever. So it illustrates for us the consequences of an idolatrous life, which warns us to flee from the wrath to come. It's a, it's a warning for everyone who would hear, who would heed that warning. And so before we read this passage, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we do depend upon you to understand and hear the truth of your word. And even to apply it to our hearts, Lord, we need your spirit to do a work there. So soften our hearts. Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. Help us to sit under your word. And to be obedient to your word. To not just hear and uh, listen, but to be doers of your word. Lord, we recognize that that we depend upon your spirit for that to be a benefit to us. We recognize that we can open your word. We can even come to church and be so filled with distraction that, it, that it's as if we weren't here. Lord, we, we pray that that wouldn't be the case, that we would devote our attention, we would devote our hearts to your word now, and to be available uh, to, to listen and apply by the work of your spirit. So give us faith as we read. 
For your glory, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's read Revelation chapter 18. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She's become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others." And repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine. And she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her, uh, of her torment and say, alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, and sheep. Horses and chariots and slaves, that is human souls. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you, and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas for the great city that, has, that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls. For in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. And all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and all whose trade is on the sea, stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, alas, alas, For the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour she's been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets. For God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon the great city be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. 
The sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more, and a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. The sound of the mill will be heard in you no more, and the light of a lamp will shine in you no more, and the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery, and in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints, and of all who've been slain on earth. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, we begin our outline looking at this first section, the first eight verses, the declaration of Babylon's judgment. The angel that has such great authority here in verse 1, that is glory lights up the whole earth, is, is probably a Christophany. That's, that's an appearance of Jesus Christ. Uh, we know that God will judge the nations through Christ. And so this declaration of judgment seems to have come from Christ here. He is the judge of the living and the dead, as we read in Acts chapter 10, verse 42. And there's plenty of other verses that reflect upon Christ's judgment at the end of time. So glory is a, a term that's used throughout Revelation exclusively of either God or the Son. And so when it speaks here of this glory that's attributed to this angel, it's, it seems to be most likely referring to Christ. And his mighty voice emphasizes his authority to declare judgment upon this harlot Babylon and the Babylon, the city, has become this ghost town that's described in verse 10. I mean, sorry, verse 2. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She's become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, for every unclean bird, for every unclean and detestable beast. Instead of the city, it's, it's a reflection on Isaiah's prophecy um, that speaks of uh, the city becoming nothing more than a place for birds and wild animals. Right? It's talking about the place just becoming inhabitable or uninhabitable. Right? It's, it's a place that's just abandoned uh, by humanity and left for wild beasts and animals and birds, right? which usually have negative connotations in Scripture. Well, here it takes it to another level. It says this isn't just birds and wild beasts. This is unclean spirits. This is unclean birds. This is unclean and detestable beasts. It's sort of saying that there's a, a spiritual bankruptcy here represented by Babylon that, it, that, it, that it, its abandonment can only be fit for unclean spirits and birds and beasts. And so that's the severity of the judgment that will fall upon Babylon, and it's due to the extent of her influence throughout this age. Right? For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. All nations she had an influence in. The immorality of the nations and of the kings represents their acceptance of Babylon's corrupt practices. The incorporation of her idolatry into the economy. We've talked about the trade guilds and the, the pagan deities that were associated with the trade guilds and in order for uh, anyone to, to co you know, cooperate with the economy to either benefit from that as merchants, they had to engage in this sort of idolatry. And so you see the condemnation of idolatry directly associated with the benefits of merchants, and we'll see that in a moment. 
But Babylon's judgment symbolizes that, that spiritual bankruptcy, this idolatry that she promotes, and that extent of, of that idolatry is to uh, every nation. Uh, the merchants had reaped the financial rewards of her power and luxury. You see that at the end of verse 3. So Babylon had seduced the nations to practice idolatry by offering economic security. Right? They, they incorporated it so directly with the economy that if you wanted to have security in any sense, which I think all of us want, right? We want to have a security. We want to have the recognition that our bills are going to be paid. But if you, if you wanted that kind of security, then you had to engage in idolatry. Right? They made it a requirement. So this was evident in every Roman-occupied territory, uh, the economy and its intricate connection to the various trade guild deities. The culture is described here as becoming drunk with immorality. Right? It's, it's, it no longer has any inhibitions with the idolatry that is set before it. Uh, it recognizes that if it wants to get further along, then it must indulge in that idolatry. And so it has that numbing effect upon them, just like alcohol. Right? There's this numbing effect if it's overindulged in, so that you begin to, to have no inhibitions. And you begin to sink further and further into the idolatry that you're engaged in. And so they, they end up having no shame in their idolatry and no fear of the consequences of that idolatry. Right? They're, they're compounding their problem more and more. And then interrupting this declaration of judgment is this brief call for God's people to flee Babylon in verse 4. Right? Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. If they engage in the corruption of the culture, not only would they participate in her sins, but they would also share in her plagues. They would be punished too because they have associated themselves with her, with Babylon. They have rejected the Lord. And so Jeremiah had given the same um, warning and command to ancient or to exiles who were living in ancient Babylon. You can read about that in um, Jeremiah 51, verses 6 and 45. If the, if the people, the exiles there, had remained in the midst of Babylon, when God brought his vengeance upon her, they would not be spared from her punishment. If they had become so attached to the culture of Babylon while they were there, and th so that they could not get out of her midst, when judgment came upon Babylon, they, would, they too would be punished. They would not be spared. And that was the warning Jeremiah was giving them. And it's the same danger that Lot and his family faced in Sodom and Gomorrah. Flee. Judgment's going to come. And when Lot's wife longingly looked back upon Sodom and Gomorrah after it had been destroyed, she herself was turned into a pillar of salt. And there's this this recognition that a longing and a love for the world that, that contradicts our love for our Savior, our love for the Lord. Right? God has rescued us out of the world, and we belong to Him. 
So God has given an account of Babylon's mountain of sin in verse 5. She's about to receive her due penalty. And she would receive payback that is in direct proportion to the evil that she stirred up for the world. The word there in verse 6 is double. It it uses it twice. Uh, Repay her double and makes a double portion. Um, It's probably more appropriate to interpret that as duplicate. It's sort of like a, it's a copy, a carbon copy of the kind of, uh, of wrath that you stirred up in the world. The destructive nature of your corruption is going to be duplicated back upon you, right? So it's, it's a just measure, which fits with everything before and around those verses, right? Pay her back as she herself has paid back others. Um, and so don't think that God has been, you know, doubling up the amount of judgment that she deserves. No, she's receiving a just portion in just measure. The measure of her luxury would be turned into a like measure of torment and mourning. And her proud boasting will be reversed, it says, in a single day. All that she had been living for and promoting throughout every nation in a single day will come crashing down when God brings his judgment upon her. So we experience Many joys in this life that are the result of cultural engagement. Um, Appreciating sports and novels and entertainment is not bad in and of itself. Uh, You do not have to deprive yourself of culture in order to honor God. Nor should you feel restricted to listening only to Christian music only reading Christian books, only watching Christian movies, only cheering for Christian athletes, only drinking Christian coffee, only eating Christian food. That's not your requirement. Only voting for Christian politicians. I'm probably stepping on some toes now. If there were no value whatsoever in secular culture then we could say, yes, that's, that's how we should live. We should simply create an enclave, a, really a, a, a holy huddle of believers and, and just supply everyone's needs within that huddle. That's not how we live. That's not the example we have in Scripture of how we are to live. Right, what comes under judgment is not the enjoyment of the physical world. It's the enjoyment of the corruption of the physical world. It's the enjoyment of the sin that is promoted by the physical world. So we can appreciate the talent, we can appreciate the skill, we can even appreciate the the political leadership that's exhibited in the world, even by those who do not acknowledge the God who gave them those gifts and talents. God's common grace, the grace that is common to all mankind, ought to be appreciated. I I think it's natural for us to appreciate that common grace that we see. But there's a difference between appreciating God's common grace and appreciating the corrupting of that grace. There's a difference between glorifying the gift and glorifying the giver of that gift. So notice who God calls to come out from Babylon in verse 4. Come out of her, my people. Only those that God has set apart as his own chosen people are called to flee Babylon. 
and to refrain from taking part in her sins. Those who have been called by God are also called to follow him out from the world's corruption. And so this is not a call to isolate ourselves from the world. It's not a call to hole up in a bunker and wait for the apocalypse. We are to be witnesses to the world, as we already saw in chapter uh, 11, verses 3 through 7, an example of the church being a witness to the world without being compromised by the world, without falling in love with the values of the world. We can still show love to the world and have compassion for her and weep over the sin that she has chosen. And so we can participate in this world without adopting the sinful values and the corrupt principles of this world. We can be in the world and not of it. Jeremiah exhorted the Babylonian exiles to engage in the life of the culture. This, this really shocked me the first time I, I noticed it, which I'll admit was not, in, was not until seminary. <laughs> uh, how many times can you read a book and, and just not catch things, right? There, God's Word is always showing greater depth. Well, Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 7 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, he's speaking to Babylonian exiles here. Jeremiah is prophesying to Babylonian exiles to engage in the life of the culture. He says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. That's not an abandoning of the culture. That's not an isolating ourselves from the culture. That's an engaging in the culture for its benefit, for its good. That's a desire to see the culture transformed. Right? Every postmillennialist here says amen. Right? That is our desire. That is our goal. That is our prayer. So in the same way, we are called to be salt and light in this world. Our Christian values ought to stand out in a way that we work and play in every way. Everything we do ought to stand out in a culture that has abandoned the one who gave them those gifts. And so as we await Christ's return in judgment, Jesus warns us to remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. Engage in the culture, but remember Lot's wife. I do not be so enamored by the world that you lose your life trying to preserve what will ultimately be destroyed. And that's, I love that Jim Elliott quote. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's a proper set of values right? that, that led him to give his life in mission. So the declaration of Babylon's judgment is followed by this reaction to Babylon's judgment, which you find. We're going to work through the the rest of this a little bit faster. But the reaction to Babylon's judgment is our second section, verses 9 through 20. And I'm just going to summarize, not read each uh, verse again. But the kings, it begins with in verses uh, 9 
9 through 10, you have the, the kings that are mentioned here who have become engrossed by the harlot's immorality, and now they, they mourn her death. It's, it's possible that these are the same kings who destroyed her in disgust back in chapter 17. Um, that's one possible interpretation, but the text does seem, it, it does not identify them as the horns of the beast. It doesn't reference uh, what chapter 17 references and verse 12. So I think John seems to be making a distinction here between the kings who um, commit sexual immorality with her and then those who are utilized as the agents of God's judgment. But either way, these, these same kings who, uh, who weep and wail over her also stand far off in fear of her torment. It's, it's as if they're afraid of getting too close to her. They, they weep and they mourn her death, but they don't want to get too close to, to also be touched by the flames themselves. So their words suggest lament and astonishment that she has gone so suddenly. I agree with Vern Poitras. He says they are terrified by the destruction that they see, and they stand far off, fearful of getting caught in the destruction but they do not repent. That's, that's the, the worldly response. To see the devastation, to be filled with despair of the loss, and then to leave it there. To not turn to the one who brought that judgment in repentance. Uh, following along, you have the death of, uh, with the death of Babylon is the merchant's they're described in verse 11. They're left to mourn the loss of their financial gain. Now you have a very direct um, connection between the financial gain of these merchants and the influence of Babylon. So if you weren't sure I was, you know, g- interpreting that right here, y- you have this the direct application of that. Very clearly, these merchants are not mourning necessarily just the loss of Babylon, that they're mourning their loss they're mourning the loss of their, of their prophets. And so her death brings this catastrophic consequences upon every industry in Rome's corrupt trade system. It's listed there in verses 12 through 13. We're not going to take the time to look at each one of those, but obviously it's just a it's, it's everything that Rome is known for. It's everything that the, that the world finds to trade and to corrupt with immoral idolatry. Uh, this same list is partially based on a list that's found uh, against Tyre. When we read ex, uh, Ezekiel chapter 27, verses 7 through 25, uh, something like half of the... the resources and goods and products that are listed of Tyre are also found in this list. And so it seems to be that, th- that it's a selective list. They're recognizing not all of those goods applied to Rome, not all of those goods will, will apply to other nations, but whatever it is that they were trading, whatever trade guilds were operating in Rome and in the various Roman-occupied territories is, is what they're, they're listing here. And so these products are the idols that the world lives for. And God is promising here in verse 14 to remove them for good. I think that's really the crux of this passage, verse 14. And the climax, the fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you. 
and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. Notice it, it doesn't say the fruit that satisfied your soul. It's, it's the fruit that your soul longed for. There was this continual, ongoing pursuit and longing for satisfaction that could never be achieved by any of these idolatries. All your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. So just like the kings, these merchants stand far off from Babylon's fire, fearing her torment. They weep and they mourn and they lament her swift death. Uh, as I've already mentioned, obviously, the, the parallels here with Tyre, you also have parallels with Jeremiah um, and the judgment uh, that is prophesied on Babylon. And clearly you have parallels with the original audience in Rome. All of these nations came under judgment for the corruption of their economies, for the idolatry that they promoted. The devastation these nations experienced is a foreshadowing of the devastation that awaits the world system upon Christ's return. All of it is pointing forward to Christ's return and the final devastating judgment that will fall upon the world. Well, it concludes with uh, a reference to the sailors in verses 17 and uh, 18. All shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and all whose trade is on the sea, stood far off. Here you have uh, similar language as the uh, kings and the merchants. There's bitter lamentation. There's a few more aspects of their mourning that are listed there uh, at the, in verse 18. But really, it's, a, it's the same language. They're shocked about the sudden death of Babylon. They're, they mourn the loss of their own riches and resources that Babel, Babylon provided. And then you read in verse 20, um, this idea of rejoicing over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. It's, it's a bit unclear who is speaking in verse 20. The ESV really includes it with the words of the sailors. However, I, th- I think it's more appropriate, or it makes more sense, if those words reflect that of the angel or the voice that came from heaven earlier in the passage. So it's getting back to that. Um, but either way, I mean, either way, even if it's the merchants recognizing that what is cause for lament for them is cause for rejoicing for those in heaven, the end result is that it's a, it's a recognition that those who are believers, those who are in heaven, are rejoicing over the result of Babylon's judgment. The death of Babylon is cause for lamentation among un- the unbelieving world, but it's a cause for rejoicing in heaven. And we'll see the, the believer's reaction to the death of Babylon in the next chapter, verses, uh, chapter 19 in the beginning of that. Uh, they'll rejoice and they'll praise God who put an end to her immorality, which is precisely what verse 20 exhorts them to do. So the world's reaction to the loss of their God shows us what false repentance looks like. Right, they, they mourn over what they have lost. They are not driven to God in their sorrow. In fact, they're simply driven to stand a little bit back so that they're not harmed as well. That's as much as it, it that's as far as it takes them. Right, they're not driven to despair because uh, they have 
or, or sorry, they are driven to despair because they have lost what is most precious to them. And Paul calls this worldly grief in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. It's a worldly grief that stands in sharp contrast to a godly grief. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. There's no sense of loss. In fact, everything that once was counted as gain, I now count as loss for the sake of Christ Jesus. It's, it's dung. It's garbage. There's no profit in it anymore. And yet we find ourselves oftentimes snooping through it once again. I drawn to the stench. Anyone is capable of lamenting, and everyone mourns their losses, but only those who are genuine believers mourn their sin as an offense against God. And this repentance is always accompanied by faith that brings salvation. And so we conclude here with verses 21 through 24 and the devastation of Babylon's judgment. So you have the declaration of Babylon's judgment followed by the reaction to Babylon's judgment and then the devastation of Babylon's judgment. It seems likely that the same angel who opened a, a declaration of judgment with a mighty voice is now seen as a mighty angel who announces the devastation of Babylon's judgment in verse 21. And the great millstone that is thrown into the sea is a depiction of what is about to happen to this great city. The musicians will be silenced, craftsmen will disappear, mill workers will have nothing to mill. There will be silence. The lights will go out, marriages will cease, because the economy had been overrun with corruption. And she had devoured the prophets and the saints and those who were slain on the earth. So Babylon served the beast by attempting to seduce and entice the saints with temptation. She was responsible for the economic and social hardships that believers face in every age. But she will receive her just reward. Babylon's immoral music will be silenced forever while heaven is filled with the sounds of praise, as we'll see in the next chapter. So Greg Beale says, Babylon, who removed the joys of life from the saints, will have her own pleasures taken away. The judgment of idolatry serves a, a deeper purpose than the display of God's justice and power. Right, it also serves to point us to the grace of God in Jesus Christ. This is something so, so many people have, have, have failed to understand uh, in, in the book, The Evil of Evils by Jeremiah Burroughs, I mentioned a, a reference to the introduction last week, but it's, it's page after page of illustrations of man's depravity. And, and it's, it's crushing, it's convicting to read. But his purpose in doing so is not to leave the reader disgusted, not to leave them just, just wallowing in their filth. Right? He writes this, I do this, that you may come to know yourselves, that you may come to know Christ. That Christ may be precious in your thoughts. For the special end of Christ's coming was to take away sin, to deliver from sin. 
And so by speaking about the evil of evils, we can appreciate more of the greatness and the goodness of our Savior who delivered us from that evil. And so the devastation of Babylon is incredible news for anyone who hates their sin. If you love your sin, then it's not great. You'll actually lament the loss. But if you hate your sin, then the, then the passing of judgment upon Babylon is good news. Do not love the world or the things in the world. John writes in his epistle, his first epistle, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So John goes on to encourage them to prepare for the opposition of the Antichrist, to expect people to leave the faith once, that they once professed, that those who know the truth will confess their faith in the Son, which confirms their faith in the Father, and in this truth they will abide until they inherit the promise of eternal life. That's his letter, his epistle to the, to the church. On the other hand, Revelation 18 reveals that idolaters will never be satisfied, but will always lament the loss of whatever they glorified, whatever they sought to find satisfaction in, whatever they worshipped, will never bring satisfaction, but will always bring lament. By contrast, those who glorify God through faith in Christ will find their satisfaction complete in Him at His return. And we have a taste of that every time we gather. We have a taste of, 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 of his goodness and, and the satisfaction of what he offers. And yet we recognize that we're not home, that we remain exiles in this world. And so we don't isolate ourselves from the world. We witness to the world without falling in love with the world's values. So let this chapter both warn you and exhort you to follow Christ and his example. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this vision. And that helps us to see um, what is so lacking in what the world offers. We are, are drawn to it. We are tempted by it. And yet it never satisfies. It always leaves a longing for more. And Lord, that longing can only be satisfied in Christ. And Lord, even as we, we unite ourselves to Christ and we find that satisfaction in him, we too long for more. We too long to, be, to remove this, this body of sin, to receive that glorified body at the resurrection that you've promised us. Because Lord, we want to have nothing to do with the sin that so easily ensnares us and entangles us. Lord, as your people, enable us to come out from Babylon, enable us to come out from the corruptions of the, the world and its values, and yet to still maintain an interest in, in the world as witnesses to her, as those who are called to, to love our neighbors, 
to put their needs above our own because it shows that sacrificial love of Christ and his humility that would that would leave the riches and glory of heaven in order to don the rags of humanity in order to save a wretch like me. Lord, may may that truth be cause for rejoicing. And with the recognition that that all filth will be wiped away when you return, or that that would be our hope and our longing. It's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen.